Last week, we started a brand new series called A Very Short Introduction. We're looking at eight different characters in the Bible to see what God does in their lives over the course of their lives. Normally, we come to church and we may hear a story about someone, but we just get that little bit or piece of their life, but we don't see the whole narrative arc of their story. But this series is dedicated to looking at individual characters and seeing the bigger picture of their life. Last week, we looked at the life of Peter, and Peter is just so relatable. We see his best and worst moments happen almost simultaneously, right? In one second, he's walking on the water, walking to Jesus, and in the next second, he's sinking due to a lack of faith. He confesses Jesus as the Messiah, and mere minutes later is rebuking Jesus for what Jesus teaches. You can see in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's willing to fight and die for Jesus. The only problem is he's not willing to die without a fight like Jesus. So he denies Jesus three times. But we see this incredible change in the life of Peter. He goes from being cowardly to courageous, and what happens in between is an encounter with our Lord, Jesus Christ. This week, we're looking at another character who actually isn't very much like Peter. His name is Aaron. And Aaron's issue is not that he has some epic success and a terrible public failure at the same time. Aaron is called to do very difficult things and sometimes obeys. Sometimes he's very courageous, very self-sacrificial, but other times he folds and fails, and it's not clear exactly why. So today's sermon is looking at why. Why does Aaron have some of these amazing moments in some circumstances, and when he's called to do very similar things in other circumstances, he crumbles under the pressure? Now, last week we said that the question driving this whole series is an existential one. Can men and women really change? Can God make us holy? Can God sanctify us? Can God root out those vices in your heart and change you to become virtuous? And last week we said the answer is yes, not because we can change ourselves or work really hard to become better people, but because God, through His Holy Spirit, can change us. Now this week we're going to look at the important connection between our life's circumstances and our heart's vulnerabilities. This is an important qualifier to the answer we gave last week. Sometimes what's going on in your life right now lends itself to certain temptations you might otherwise avoid. Okay, so just think about how this truth applies in your life, okay? God calls upon you to be generous. And maybe normally you are generous, and it actually isn't very difficult for you, but then you get stuck with a massive bill, and that bill is hanging over your head, and you don't know if you want to be generous anymore because of that looming expense. Maybe God calls upon you to be faithful to your spouse, and maybe for you, that's never been a challenge. You've always been faithful to your spouse. You've never even considered any other possibility, but then you find yourself alone with another woman in your office, and all of a sudden, the temptation is a lot louder. Maybe God calls upon you to serve the poor, and normally you make time in your schedule each and every week to serve the poor, but work is really busy right now, and you just don't know if you can make the time anymore. God is calling upon you to spend time with your kids and your grandkids, and normally you love to, but they just moved across the country, and now it's going to be a lot more difficult. You see where I'm going with this? Our life circumstances have an impact on our heart's vulnerabilities, and the volume of temptation 
The desire to disobey God increases with the right or wrong conditions in place. Aaron is the kind of man who sometimes shows great courage and other times is cowardly. And we need to see why. So in order to go back to the very beginning of his story, we're going to go to North Africa in Egypt, and we're going to flash back 34 centuries ago. So it's been a little bit of time since Aaron's life and death. But we need to go back and look at his family because the family within which he grew up was called the Israelites. The Israelites were made up of 12 tribes led by 12 sons, and their descendants start to grow and really multiply, and they move to a land called Goshen during a famine. And the land of Goshen is right next to the nation of Egypt. Now, Egypt saw this growing family as a threat. These might be potential enemies one day. And so before they can become strong, they enslave these Israelites. So we're going to look at one story within one tribe within that growing family of Israel. Now, and it begins with a marriage. A man from the tribe of Levi named Amram married a woman in his tribe named Jochebed. Now, marriage doesn't exempt you from Egyptian slavery. Each and every day, Amram gets up and he is forced to do his slave labor and Jochebed is forced to do hers. And they are contributing to the overall project of Pharaoh to build a store city called Ramses. But here's what we're told in the Bible. This is true of all the Israelites at the time. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied. I'm not joking. This is an actual verse in the Bible. In other words, they start making a lot of babies, okay? And, and Amram and Jochebed have two kids. First, their oldest daughter, Miriam, and then a boy named Aaron. But here's the thing. After Aaron is born, the Egyptian king makes this new statewide policy. By law, the midwives of the Israelites have to kill any boy who is born to an Israelite couple. And obviously, that's bad news for all of the Israelites. But three years after Aaron is born, Amram and Jochebed get pregnant with their third. Now this nationwide policy is coming to haunt them. Jochebed gives birth to Moses. Now, fortunately, the midwife doesn't do what Pharaoh has commanded, but what they have to do is hide this baby. And for any parent, any mom or dad in the room, that sounds near impossible. They do this for a couple of months, and eventually it gets too difficult, so they have to come up with a new plan. Now, Jochebed, Moses' mom, knows that Pharaoh's daughter has a soft spot for babies, okay? So Jochebed and Miriam actually put Moses in a basket strategically where they know the king's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, would bathe in the Nile. And just like they plan, this woman finds Moses and takes him in as her own son. So for the rest of their adolescence and early adulthood, Moses lives in a different area than his two siblings, Moses grows up in the palace of Pharaoh, being educated by all the Egyptians and all of their wisdom. Miriam and Aaron live in the land of the slaves, in the land of Goshen, and we have no idea how much they communicated and how much they talked to each other. We just know that Moses eventually left Egypt to go to another country called Midian, and this move to Midian was not planned. Moses saw a master beating a a Hebrew slave, and Moses anger erupts, and he wants to defend this slave, and he kills this slave master. Well, he knows you can't do that in Egypt, and that puts him on Pharaoh's most wanted list, and so he flees. He goes to Midian, and once he goes there, Moses and Aaron kind of live this parallel life, okay? Moses 
marries a woman named Sipporah. He settles down in Midian, and he has a son named Gershom. At the same time, Aaron, his brother, marries a woman named Elishabah, and they have four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and, and Ithamar. Now, at the same time, we don't often think about this, God calls both Moses and Aaron. We love the story of the burning bush, where God calls Moses, and Moses gives all these excuses. God calls Aaron at the exact same time, and sometimes we don't really consider what the stakes were in Aaron going out to Mount Sinai to meet Moses. He is a slave, and God tells him to leave his land of slavery and go and meet Moses out in the desert. I'm sure they didn't have passports where they could just say, okay, this is where I'm headed. No, no, no. These are slaves. They are not allowed to freely move wherever they want to go. They are stuck. Now, we don't have any details about this, but I'm sure it wasn't a cakewalk. But what does Aaron do? He goes, and he doesn't make any excuses that Moses makes. So they meet out in the wilderness, and they're reunited for the first time. And from, from then on, Aaron's life totally transforms. He was one slave in a million, and he becomes one of the most famous men in all of Israel. God makes Aaron the right-hand man of Moses and speaker on his behalf. If you've ever seen a movie or any kind of depiction of the Exodus story, sometimes you think Moses and Pharaoh square off and they have these great battles and contests with their words. No, no, no. Who did God choose to speak on behalf of Moses? His brother, Aaron. Moses specifically says, by the way, God, I don't talk good. Can you figure out a replacement for me? And God doesn't say, oh no, Moses, you actually are a great public speaker. You just need to find that within. No, he says, I'm going to sing your brother because you aren't good at public speaking. Aaron meets him along the way. He becomes almost like a prophet. Look at what God says to Moses. I've made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother's going to be your prophet. And here's the thing. Aaron's not just speaking words from God. He also performs signs and wonders. Maybe when you were a kid, you heard that story of Aaron throwing down his staff in front of Pharaoh, and the staff turns into a snake. Then the Egyptian magicians come along. They throw down their staffs, but then Aaron's snake staff eats all of theirs. That's God working through Aaron, speaking through Aaron. He is the one who turns the Nile River into blood. He's the one who brings about the plagues of frogs and gnats. Aaron isn't some tag-along helper with Moses. He is a prophet and a miracle worker. Here's the thing. Those roles aren't even his most prominent role. Aaron becomes the high priest of Israel, and his sons are chosen to continue that priesthood when he dies. That's not just like an interesting fact from the Old Testament. These are the men who are responsible for the worship of the one true God. They are responsible for making the sacrifices to atone for people's sins. This is a big deal. And guess who's in charge of it? Aaron. Now, I wish we could have a picture of Aaron, but we don't, we don't see what he looked like whenever he was in his high priestly vestments. But it was amazing. He, he had the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies. No one else did. That was just Aaron. Aaron was the one who sacrificed for the Day of Atonement. And, and all this is built on the fact that God chose Aaron. We read this from the letter of Hebrews. Whoever is the high priest doesn't take that honor on himself. He's called by God. This is all God's doing. The high priesthood is so prominent throughout Scripture that Jesus 
comes to a high priest, a descendant of Aaron, when he's put on trial centuries later. One more story about Aaron, because I can't help myself. There's this battle that takes place at, this, at, the, at Rephidim, and the Israelites have just escaped slavery. The Amalekites attack them. Moses sends his military general, Joshua, to take some men and fight the Amalekites. Moses hikes up a hill to oversee the battle and pray over the soldiers. And guess who Moses takes with him? He takes Aaron. And as long as Moses holds up his hands, the Israelites win the battle, but whenever he lowers his hands, the Amalekites win the battle. And this is what we're told about Aaron. Whenever Moses grew tired, they put a stone under him so he could at least sit and hold up his hands. But even still, when his hands got tired, guess who held them up? Aaron. And they remained steady until sunset. This is what I love so much about Aaron. When he sees an enemy who is clearly coming to attack him or God's people from the outside, he takes that enemy head on. When he knows an external threat, he doesn't back down despite all the dangers entailed in that risk. I mean, he escapes Goshen in the middle of the night to go meet Moses. He speaks prophetically to the most powerful man in Egypt. He performs miracles against magicians, and he intercedes for soldiers in the fight against the Amalekites. Aaron is a hero. Until this happens. On Mount Sinai, while Moses is receiving the Torah from God, the people notice that Moses has been gone for a long time. And so they gather around who? Aaron. And they say, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses guy who brought us up out of Egypt, well, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, just so you know, God has already given the Ten Commandments. And maybe when you were a kid, you were taught to memorize those. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself graven images or idols. So they are asking the future high priest to help them break the first two commandments, like of the top ten. And there's this beautiful opportunity for Aaron to stop this before it goes any further, and he totally wastes it. Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf that actually symbolizes an Egyptian god named Apis. And he fashions it with a tool. You see what he does right here? He succumbs to peer pressure. When there's evil in his own house, he folds. He breaks the first two commands because his fellow Israelites told him so. I mean, he spoke like a prophet to Pharaoh, who I assume could have executed him on the spot, but where is his prophetic voice now? Look at the next verse. Aaron tries to combine two religions right here. Look at this. When Aaron sees this golden calf, he builds an altar to it and announces, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He actually uses the name of God right here. He's trying to play both sides. He's trying to appease the people and appease God. Yeah, we're going to use this idol, but to worship the actual God. And it gets worse. 
The next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After, they sat down to eat and got up to indulge in revelry. Some of the older translations say, and they rose up to play. They are not playing Scrabble. This is an orgy. This, is, this goes against everything God would ever have for his people. Moses comes down from the mountain and sees this atrocity in front of him, and he rebukes Aaron, and this is Aaron's response. Well, they gave me the gold, and I threw the gold into a fire, and out of the fire came this calf. This is the guy who beat the Egyptian magicians, and now he's like, it's magic, Moses. I don't know what happened. This is Aaron's first and greatest failure. We know Aaron has the ability to be brave. We know he has the ability to be prophetic. We know he has the ability to be obedient. But as long as it's against a clear enemy, but where do those gifts go when it's his own people? Unfortunately, this is not Aaron's last failure, and we don't have time to discuss all three in detail, but I think these three show the point. In this next failure, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are ministering at the tabernacle. This is where God's presence is, where they're supposed to worship God, and we're told that they offer unauthorized fire and incense. Now, it's not clear exactly what happened. Some scholars think that they were drunk while in the tabernacle. Some scholars think that they went into the Holy of Holies, which was only allowed for Aaron on the Day of Atonement. It could be a combination. It could be something else. Regardless, God punishes both of his sons with death. In the second story, we read in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses marries a Cushite woman, and we're told that his two older siblings are not happy about this marriage. Miriam and Aaron begin to grumble against Moses because of his wife. And again, it's not clear exactly what the problem was they had with this woman. The fact that her country of origin is mentioned twice is quite revealing. The fact that Miriam is punished by her skin becoming leprous might show that they were not favorable toward this woman's skin tone. Regardless, they challenge Moses' authority on this absurd, superficial, groundless disagreement, and God appears and rebukes both Aaron and Miriam. The third story happens in Numbers chapter 20. The Israelites are complaining again about not having any water. They don't have access to it. God has already provided water multiple times. And God tells Moses and Aaron that he's going to do it again. He says, speak to a rock and I will provide water for Israel. And Moses says to the Israelites, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? He raises his arm. He strikes the rock twice with his staff and water gushes out. Again, it's not clear the exact reason why what Moses and Aaron did was wrong. But either way, God sees into their hearts and says, you don't trust me, and you're not honoring me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, and so neither of you will go into the land that I promised. Those are the very last words God spoke to Aaron before he dies. Y'all, I think there's a theme running throughout Aaron's failures. He succumbs to internal peer pressure from the Israelites to make the golden calf. He fails to correct two of his sons and his own family. He has issues with his brother's decision to marry, and he loses faith in God because of the Israelites' complaints. Aaron thrives when the opposition is external, when it comes from the outside, when he has a clear enemy in Pharaoh or the magicians or the Amalekites. 
But when it's his own people, he flounders and flails and fails. Now, how does Aaron's story help us? How does it answer the question, can we change? Can we really be made holy? The answer is still yes, God can make us holy, but our circumstances matter. Our environment matters. Sin is absolutely a problem of the human heart that only God can change, but that doesn't mean all temptations go away the day you get baptized. Yes, God can give us strength by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean our weaknesses vanish overnight. Just like Aaron, with the right conditions, we can fail in areas that we otherwise would thrive in. There's this famous North African theologian named Augustine, and he was so insistent on this. At, at the time he was writing, there were some heretics who were saying that you could become perfect, that in this life you could remove all sin, all vestiges of sin from you. And he said, no. This is why Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, because in that prayer it says, lead us not into temptation. And we need that Lord's Prayer our entire life. We'll always be tempted. There will always be conditions that will put pressure on us, and the volume of temptation will increase, just like it did for Aaron. Paul writes in Colossians 3, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And he writes that to Christians, because we have an ongoing battle where we need to put to death all of those vices of our hearts. So if you find yourself in a situation like Aaron, just going to recommend what Augustine recommended 17 centuries ago. Pray the Lord's Prayer. One of my vices is anger. I've struggled with it my entire life, and my fuse is way shorter than I wish it was. And when I feel anger, any kind of resentment bubbling up, I pray this prayer, I pray other prayers, because these are gifts in spiritual warfare. When you're right in the middle of that temptation, these prayers help. They're gifts from Jesus directly to you. And your, your weakness may not be Aaron's weakness. That just means you need to be vigilant about the circumstances that challenge you. So the question is, when are you weakest? Is it when you're alone? Or is it when you're in groups? Is it when your financial situation is tight? Or is it when you have a lot to spend? Is it when you're on your laptop or phone or watching the news? Where are you weakest? Because Satan doesn't always show up in obvious ways. He uses those little life circumstances to put pressure on you, to turn up the volume of temptation. Now the good news is that God gives us the Holy Spirit to watch out for these footholds. Aaron was a prophet and a miracle worker and the high priest, and all of that is incredible. But everyone in this room, we have the Holy Spirit, which is far, far more powerful than what Aaron had. So we can ask the Holy Spirit, what, what footholds could the enemy exploit in my life? What footholds does Satan already have secured in my heart? Paul tells us, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil an inch. Don't say, in those circumstances, I'll probably do the right thing. No, pray the Lord's Prayer and ask the Holy Spirit ahead of time, where are my weaknesses? What conditions put pressure on me? And the Holy Spirit will help.
and alert us all about those vulnerabilities ahead of time. Let's pray. Father, we see in the life of Aaron our own life. And maybe we don't have the same weaknesses as him, but I just get this sense that some of us in the room right now know exactly what those footholds are. The enemy has a foothold in our hearts or in our minds. He knows exactly what conditions and circumstances make us most likely to buckle under the pressure. So, Father, I ask that you give us your Holy Spirit, pour out your Holy Spirit, empower us by your Holy Spirit to see those areas in our lives, to watch out for them, and, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to banish Satan from our lives. We need the Holy Spirit's help. Sometimes we are blind to this, and we, we don't want to be like Aaron. We don't want to be clueless to these weaknesses. Father, help us each and every day. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.